You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, So I've been in the village for about 13 years. I started as a free intern. Anybody have that experience? Um, I did something and someone else got paid for it. It was great. Uh, I was at the Dallas campus for about three to four years and then moved to my hometown of Fort Worth to plant the campus there. was there for five years and then came up to Flower Mound. And uh, well, now I, now I help lead the institute, serve as an elder, uh, also work with our groups. I'm really humbled and excited to be with you this morning. I'm looking out seeing faces I haven't seen in a few years, and that's a blessing to my soul. Uh, so thanks for letting me be with you. I, uh, I want to consider this morning how wisdom shapes becoming a healthy Christian. So how wisdom shapes becoming a healthy Christian. Now, if you believe the Bible, it says that you and I are made by God. And in making us, He made our life to best function in His good design. But because of sin, you and I have woken up in a world and we've woken up with hearts that think our way is better than God's. We inherently distrust that God is as good that He says that He is. And so God hasn't left us alone to figure it out, which is a grace. He's given us all we need to know Him and all we need to become truly human. Not superhuman, but truly human. But we have to be willing to listen to wisdom on His terms. Now, I'll tell you, I'm a a seventh-generation Texan, which means it just runs deep in my family. And my favorite Saturdays growing up were walking the pasture with my dad. So I'm probably six, seven, eight years old, and I just remember long stretches of time following my dad's footsteps because you knew there weren't snakes there, and listening to him tell me stories of Texas history. And then we'd just have kind of meandering conversations talking about life. And uh, I turned 40 this summer, and I'll tell you, I don't think it's just nostalgia. I often think of those weekends, now that I have children that age, I often think of those weekends with joy and gratitude that I could listen to my dad tell me about life. And so you look at the book of Proverbs and you read through the beginnings of the chapters within Proverbs and what you hear is a father saying, my son, listen to my teaching. Listen to my instruction. So we pick up here in chapter four. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Earlier earlier in that very same chapter, he says this, the beginning of wisdom is this. You guys know this. You've been in this wisdom series for, what, nine years now? Um, It says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you do, Get insight. So I want to talk about, i got three things for you today. Ready? Get wisdom, see rightly, keep watch. Those are my three points. Good Baptist, just serve it to you up front. That's it. First one is get wisdom. Most of you probably know the story of Solomon. One night, God comes to him in a dream and says, hey, what do you want? Like, what can I give you? Which is just a sweet gig, right? What do you want? And Solomon says, this is the message. So, I mean, you know, it's not literal, but go with me. Here's what I want. 
Give me a God-listening heart so I can lead your people well, discerning the difference between good and evil. For who on their own is capable of leading your glorious people? Like God gave Solomon a blank check, which is not just a great late 90s movie. He gave them a blank check and said, what do you want? What do you want? And he said, I want wisdom. I want a God-listening heart. And God's response to Solomon was not only to grant a wise and mature heart, he granted a bunch of other stuff if you read. And the question, what can I give you, reappears in the mouth of Jesus time and again in the Gospels. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? For years now, I've been praying that my response would be, I want wisdom, Lord. I want wisdom. How, how else will I know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong in this life? I want a God-listening heart because I'm tired of listening to myself. So I ask you this morning, are you tired of listening to yourself. Our world has traded God's wisdom for our feelings and access to information. Uh, the little black rectangle that you welcomed into your life, that's in your pocket, it has leveled the value of experience and expertise. But I gotta remind you this morning that access to information does not equal character transformation. Access to information does not equal character transformation. You and I have more access to information than anyone in history. But do not be fooled that just because it's, you can get it on your phone means it's shaped who you are. And so no matter how many books you have on your shelf, how many copies of the Bible you have, if it's not in you, the Spirit cannot use it to change you. Facts are not wisdom. Wisdom is the application of discernment to circumstances. It's the application of discernment to circumstances in pursuit of a good and beautiful life with God, and wisdom is found alone in God. You guys are singing, and I'm just over here just kind of figuring out how I can steal these lights with the posture and, this, and everything in it, um, because I'm sitting here thinking, man, what a settling thing to think that wisdom is a place, it's a posture, it's a person. It's not on you to figure it out, but it's actually on you to receive and then to live into. What a grace that we are not left alone to try and discern what is best in this life, but God has told us. When you and I are, uh, when we're met with the gap between who we want to be and who we actually are, the wisdom of this world tells us to change our beliefs to accommodate our desires rather than discipline our desires to match our beliefs. And so we need to think what it is to walk in God's wisdom and to not let the, the, the culture say, no, how you feel is what's right. How you think is what's right. There is a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. And God would say, hear my words. Walk in wisdom and our days are numbered as those created by the Creator. And you and I, we want to live these days given with wisdom. So the psalmist says, and it's repeated in Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to tie back to Solomon and even to our passage, if you allow me to paraphrase it, I'd say this. The beginning of wisdom is to desire a God-listening heart. 
The beginning of wisdom is to desire a God-listening heart. And it sure is hard to listen. It's hard to want to get wisdom if we don't see God rightly. Like, if you're here and you're like, I want to be faithful, I want to follow God. Like, it is hard to curb our appetites, control our spending, try and change decade-old habits. It's hard to speak past our shame if we don't see God rightly. And so we have to get wisdom and we have to see Him rightly. I found a common obstacle to growth as a Christian is believing that God is loving, kind, and good. Like it's hard for us to believe that He is loving, kind, and good. We doubt it. I might ask you, hey, what do you think God says about you? And you're like, well, He thinks that I am, I am beloved, I am cherished, I am His, I am kept, I am redeemed. He sees me as spotless. And I'd say, okay, what do you think He says about you when you yell at your kids? When you lose your cool? When you do that thing you said you wouldn't do? People are like, a mess, in process, uh, kind of not worth my time. Like we go from what we know we should say to what we feel functionally really quick, right? You feel those words? You, people, you must just be really kind to yourself. <laughs> so this isn't just something I hear about. It's something I experience all the time. Like if asked, I'll tell you that I believe God loves me like he says in the scriptures, and I struggle at times to believe that God is not just good for me, but good to me. He's good for me because good seems perfunctory, like he has to be. But is he kind? Does he care about me? See, I know spiritual growth requires fresh experiences of forgiveness, but I struggle to receive forgiveness. Like I know consistently experiencing God's grace is crucial to spiritual maturity, but I tend to accept grace in theory, but not in practice. You know what I mean? This is most of my upbringing. Grace in theory, but not in practice. Uh, I, I think grace is for needy people, which is so nice for them. Someone got it. <laughs> it's so nice for them. I don't want to be needy. So I need a grace to get in the kingdom, but it's on me to keep in the kingdom. I'm bent to believe that God's love is earned while he keeps proving it's freely given in the Son. So this is my functional wisdom. My functional wisdom is, well, you were kind to let me in, but that's, this two-way relationship means I keep having to earn, right? That's how it goes. And that is not how it goes in God's economy. You guys struggle with this? Yeah? Okay. The whisper under all these fears is the accusation that God is not who he says he is when it comes to his goodness, his kindness, and compassion. But he is good, kind, and compassionate. And he's a whole host of other attributes that the scriptures teach us. And to view him any other way is to get our outlook on him, and honestly, is to get our outlook on the world wrong. One theologian says, if we get God wrong, we get living in his world wrong. If we believe love is dependent on performance, we will lie to ourselves about why things feel off. And so we need to see him rightly. Now, I'm big on spiritual disciplines. And so when I say I want to talk to you about how wisdom helps us grow as a healthy Christian, I do mean spiritual disciplines. I mean habits in our life. And we'll talk about this. But I got to tell you, if you view that word, even spiritual discipline, if inside of that you, you think, 
Man, that is performance for acceptance. That means I have to do this so that he knows I'm serious. Which just a quick read is, if you miss your quiet time, do you feel guilt and shame that God thinks you're lazy? Like, just functionally, how do you operate in this space? So, it takes effort to see God rightly, and it takes grace. Sin distorts our thinking, and it serves up shame on a daily basis about who we are, but how God thinks about us, and how if others knew the real us, they'd leave. You ever experienced this? Like, I think functionally at some point, we believe that those in Christ can move from adoption and security to wrath if God has a bad day. You might not say it that way out loud, but think about how you talk to yourself. Think about how you treat yourself when you don't think you're living up. Like, you, you and I will set standards of perfection that the Scripture does not put on us, and then we will condemn ourselves when we don't rise to our own standards, when God has said, walk in humility. Walk in wisdom. Be in process and be okay with not being perfect. But we live in a culture that only prizes perfection, and we wanted it yesterday. So many of us struggle with the obstacles of disbelief, skepticism, cynicism, and all of these are forms of protecting ourselves from being disappointed. Like cynicism, skepticism, disbelief just means I can be the judge of what's right so I don't get hurt. And cynicism gets rewarded in many circles because believing in the good just seems naive. Like, oh, poor you. You don't know the world. Let me tell you. Well, cynicism, as a friend of ours says, is just skeptical of the good. That's all it is. The scary thing is that we often can also trust false promises of the good life. Of saying, well, if I just get enough stuff, if I just have the right person or the right friends or the right job, these things, these things will bring me life. And the scary thing is that all of those things deliver for a while. All of them. You can have enough stuff, have the right spouse, have the right job, the right car, whatever. And they deliver for a while and make you feel good, but they never ultimately fill or satisfy. And honestly, they don't shape you into who God wants you to become. They, they deform you into something else. So money can't buy you comfort. Or money can buy you comfort, but it can't buy you true joy. Fame can get you fans, but crowds bring trouble of their own. Perfectionism can get you a smooth life, but it brings an inner condemnation when you don't measure up. So even as these narratives, these false stories of the good life fail to fully deliver, we keep asking them to perform for us, don't we? We go to a dry well over and again, asking it to give us living water. We struggle to trust God is good for us because we don't know our Bibles as well as we think. Or we know we don't know the Bible, so we avoid the book because of shame. Like, I should know that, but I'm going to wait till someone else answers so they don't think I'm less. Like, how come we come into the kingdom confessing our weakness, and then after we're in the kingdom, we hide the fact we have weakness? This is mind-boggling to me that you and I, the whole reason we are in this room is that we would say, I have been broken beyond repair of my own doing. I need the Lord. He is kind, good, and for me. Therefore, I will give my life to Him. And then once that happens after a few months, you're thinking, I am broken beyond repair. Beyond repair. Let me fix it. So that other people don't know. We have to be reminded of our need, of our dependence, and of God's kindness. 
So I tell you, if, you, if, you're, uh, if skepticism, false promises, and shame aren't your hang-up in a journey towards spiritual maturity, the obstacle might be busyness. Some of us are too busy doing things for Jesus to really know Jesus. And so we settle for a conditional relationship where activity means acceptance. Uh, if you know anything about counseling, this is called anxious attachment. So it is that as long as I stay busy, as long as I do what I think he wants or get in front of him enough, then I'll know that he's okay with me. Now, as someone who's struggled with anxiety for most of my life, this is me. If I, as long as I keep the habit right or I'm devoted enough or I'm in prayer enough, then I can know that I'm secure with him. But I'll tell you this, what happens when your anxiety goes away? What happens when you, when you don't have the thing that pushes you to him? Who are you? Well, you're kept by God is who you are. You're loved by him. And you don't have to keep popping your head up to get his attention. You are securely kept by him, which allows you to continue to grow into a different kind of person. Now, Jesus has no interest in a relationship where activity means acceptance. He's got no interest in it. But we convince ourselves it's what he really wants, which is the same move as the Galatians, who began by faith and depended on works. It's chapter 2. We're welcomed in as children, yet through doubt and self-deception, we tell ourselves we'll, just last, we'll last longer in this relationship if we act like hourly workers. You're given the opportunity to be a child and we trade it to be an hourly worker all the time, looking for acceptance and making sure that we're okay. When God has said, receive grace, walk in wisdom. There is freedom for you, no condemnation. And finally, I think the most foundational obstacle that many of us face is thinking of God as a father, let alone a loving father. Now, Jesus seems safe to us. Right? Like Jesus seems safe because he's kind, he's nice. He gets mad at the right people as you read the New Testament. And he's, he's nice to the people who need it. And then we think, well, yeah, he's, Jesus is my friend. And all that he did for me was so that God would, God would be okay with me. So Jesus is the nice one and God who was mad at me is now okay because Jesus placated him. That's heresy. Also, it's not true. So Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, if you struggle to wonder how God receives you, where do you need to look? At Christ. You need to look at Christ, who is the living heart of God's wisdom and God's love, to show how he receives you. Now, Father is a spring-loaded word for many of us with emotions, fears, and doubts because of our earthly fathers. And if we get down to it, uh, our family of origin impacts how we think about God in much stronger ways than we realize. And so wisdom is also to know where you came from, who you've been in relationship with, and how that has impacted how you see God. So let me give you an example. Throughout life, we trust our hearts, our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions, and desires to other fallen human beings, Right? Uh, who are largely unable to rightly handle their own emotions, let alone ours. 
Here's, okay, so let's just make this really concrete. You ever had a friend where you're like, I need to bear my soul to you. I need someone to talk to because life is overwhelming. I cannot handle it. I need help. And so you choose someone, not a random, but someone you think is going to be okay, right? And they listen and then take a big swing and whiff, right? You're like, here is my soul. Here, I need help. Am I okay? And they're like, well, hmm, let's try to fix this. And they just say, you should do this. Or, you know, I can relate to that problem 100%. Let's do this. This is what this worked for me. Instead of going, man, it's really hard. Like carrying that weight must be exhausting. Can we go to the Lord together? Like there's a difference, right? In the first scenario where your friend goes, well, let me, let me just tell you that that's, that's ridiculous. You don't need to worry about that. And you're like, well, I've been worrying about it for years. In your 15 seconds, thank you for your judgment. This seems like real wisdom. Like at that point you go, I'm not doing that again. Like forget that. I'm going to shut that part of myself off because obviously that's too much or I can't trust other people and I don't want to be hurt again. And so we go through life testing for trust, cutting off parts of ourselves where it doesn't feel safe. And then when someone comes to us and says, God is for you, God can be trusted. God is gracious and God loves you. You said, yeah, I've heard that before from other people. None of them did it right. And we project these things onto God because in our human relationships with other fallen human beings, we are loved, let down, cared for, hurt, abused, protected, disappointed, or nourished. And depending on your story, all of those things impact what we, what we project onto God which means we don't see him rightly. We are living with a picture of him that we've created based on our experience, not living with reality based on his own self-disclosure of who he is, which means it takes work for us to get wisdom and to see rightly. Just ask you, do you base the love of God the Father on the failures of your earthly father? Do you expect him to treat you like you would treat you. Like some of us expect God to only treat us as good as we treat ourselves. And I don't know how many of us are just super cheery and kind to ourselves. Like frankly, we get annoyed with those people, right? Just me. Okay, great, cool. All right, drink your coffee. It's 943. So I'd say that I believe the single most effective weapon against our joy in Christ and becoming who we're made to be is the lie that God is not who he says he is and that you can't trust him. I think it's the lie of the garden, friends. And so I think that is just sown deeply into us. And so if we take God at his word in his wisdom and not our own, we hear a different reality. We hear a different reality. And if we get this right, it will change our lives. So let's listen to Jesus. He says in John 15 to his disciples, as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. For years I read that and thought, that's cool. I mean, like, how does that work? Because I know me, and he can't really love me like that. 
It's hard for me to believe that Jesus means what he says here because I have plenty of objections to why God's love can't be that good, which, to be honest with you, friend, are all ways that I try to protect myself from getting hurt. To protect myself from being disappointed if he really isn't as good as he says that he is. But he is. He is. And so you and I need our default scripts rewritten so that we can see rightly. Just the Father has loved me, I I have also loved you. Remain in my love. God does not love like we do. His love is better than ours and transforms us to be loved by Him and to love like Him. And so you and I are not just moved from death to life, but God has reconciled us in love. Not just from death to life, tolerated to brought in, but from slave of sin to child of God. You're not not going to be moved and put under wrath at any point if you are in Christ. Condemnation is gone. You are secure in the kingdom. You are brought in to grow into who God made you to be, becoming more truly human. So the Holy Spirit's at work in you to encourage and enable faith in God. You don't have to live waiting for the other shoe to drop or worry you're going to wear out your welcome with God. His love for you isn't based on your ability to keep every rule. In fact, his love for you has actually overcome your ability to keep it, your inability to keep any rules. So my encouragement to you in seeing rightly is to believe what he says and abide in his love. Believe what he says and abide in his love. When you do this, you'll see rightly and be able to grow. So our three things, get wisdom, see rightly, keep watch. The end goal of the Christian life is not that you become awesome. In case that is what you were thinking. It's not that you become awesome, it's that you become truly human. Because the Holy Spirit lives in those who follow Christ, there's this ongoing restoration of God's good design that you and I get to participate in. Like he's remaking the world and he's remaking us. That we would be able to image him and know him. And because we are filled with his love by the power of his spirit in us, we are changed. We are told to, to keep, which I would say to instruct, to discipline, to steward our heart, which is our thoughts, emotions, and desires. And we're told to keep our heart with all vigilance. This means that you and I have an active role to play in our growth as Christians. So you read the New Testament, and you read the Pauline epistles, uh, and you just read through, and you hear a lot of things where you're like, great, like what else do I need to do? Because that's all really hard. Like Colossians 3 is put off all these things and then put on all these things. You're like, well, is the Christian life just trying harder? Paul is saying, well, training for godliness is a value in this life and the next. He's telling every church, Make sure you live a life worthy of your calling. Be distinct and different than what you were when you were a Gentile and didn't know Jesus. And at times we can think, okay, well, I just need to just make a checklist of all the things that I can't do anymore, right? And as long as I'm not doing those things, then God and I are good. What a minimal view of God's plan for you. Like the whole thing of having an active participation with the Spirit to become who he made you to be, is that God invites us into joy. He invites us into flourishing and true life in his good design for humanity. And so he invites us to say, you have a role in this. He shapes our will and our desires, but he gives us a part to play. 
And when we think about this, I, I tend to think through this with spiritual disciplines that we want to offer all of who we are to God. So I say we offer our attention, our emotions, and our limits to God. Now, our attention is what you look at, and what you look at, what you think about, where your mind sits, it shapes who you become. When we think about our emotions, I, I tend to say they're real, but they're not always reliable. I have three children under 10. There's a lot of saying, your emotions are real and valid. They're going to change in about 30 seconds. <laughs> right? But honestly, I don't think that's any different than what I say to myself. They're real, but they're not always reliable. Where is your, where is your measure of truth? Where is your mainstay? Your mainstay that does not move is God's wisdom. Your emotions change with how much coffee you have on an empty stomach or how little you've slept. Yes? God's emotions are perfect towards you. He's just not like us. And so he's able to keep us. And I think about limits, treating ourselves like humans, not machines. Like you cannot life hack your way into holiness. It doesn't happen. And we need to embrace limitations as grace, not punishment. Like, if you, have to, if you have a lot to do and you drink coffee at 10 p.m. so you can stay up, do you know why you have to drink coffee at 10 p.m.? It's because you're made to go to bed. You're made to need to sleep. Think about how much of our day is trying to deny our limitations. How much of what we do is to try and push outside of being a creature? Man, you can send your DNA off now and get uh, personalized supplements that you can try and defeat aging. You can. You can do any type of biohacking you want to try and not have to deal with the process of getting older. But you were designed to mature and age. You were designed to need to eat, to rest, and to live in a limited manner because it reminds you, you are not God. It's offering our limits and living within those limits and letting that be wisdom that guides our life. So I want you to think about this. In wisdom, we recognize that progress in the Christian life, growing in wisdom and becoming truly human, goes at a totally different pace than the speed of our culture. Uh, the best-selling best product of our culture right now is daily life without friction. So instead of waiting or working on something nowadays, it's just easier to buy, consume, or replace anything. Like if someone has uh, an item they've had for a long time and it's worn down and they get it repaired, you're like, why don't you just buy a new one? Okay. How about I just got my boots resold instead of buying a new pair of boots? We think it's just easier to get a new one. That's too much effort. Like progress for the world brings fewer steps, burdens, clicks, and it brings quicker outcomes. And when I think anything I want is available on my phone, it gets easier to expect that my character is going to change just as fast. We think that character formation is a one-click order with two-day shipping. And friends, it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. This dropship character thinks authentic spiritual development is unrehearsed. That authentic spiritual experience is spontaneous. And so if we had to plan to pray before we felt like praying, or plan to read the scriptures before we felt like doing so, 
For some, it feels less than authentic, less than genuine. We wait for the right emotion to act rather than plan the actions that serve to direct our emotions in God's wisdom. So I got to tell you, why do we expect our relationship with God to be like an episode of Schmigadoon, like a musical where people just bust out in song for no reason? Like, why do you expect that to be your relationship with God? You don't treat any other relationship in your life that way. No other relationship in your life do you think, oh, it's just going to be effortless and easy, and it's going to burst into song, right? If you do, I want to watch your life. (laughs) But in thinking about spiritual disciplines, people will say, I'm just not a naturally disciplined, disciplined person. It's really hard for me. Every relationship in my life takes discipline. Every single one. Because I am naturally a very selfish person. And any relationship outside of myself takes discipline to begin, maintain, and grow. I have a wife. I have three children. I am a son. I am an uncle. I am a brother. I am a pastor. Every single one of those relationships takes time, intentionality, and effort. If they're going to go anywhere. Why do we think relationship with God should be effortless? And why, when it takes effort, do we think, well, no, that's law. We shouldn't have to do anything. One of my favorite theologians says, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. You don't earn your way into the kingdom. Grace gives it to you. And then God calls us to expend effort in our life to become who he made us to be, partnering with the Spirit. So the goal of the Christian life is for our minds to be renewed through a grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered, discipline-embracing way of life that necessitates our sustained effort. So I just want to share with you one of my... I've got about three or four minutes left. I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes ever. Are you ready? You have to say yes. Okay, great. Good, good. I'm just making sure you're with me. Uh, So Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says... The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of the human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We want what is right and important, but at the same time we won't commit to what gets us there. Now, this one gets me every time because when it comes to following God's design for living, why is it so hard for us to follow through in our good intentions? Why is it easier to say, I need to catch up on Ted Lasso. I'm just going to binge another episode. Why is it easier to say, well, that can wait. God will be patient. I need to go take care of these tasks, this work, that email. From a neurobiological angle, um, I think one of the biggest hindrances to our formation is that glowing rectangle in your pocket. Just as straight as I can say it. Uh, Billions of dollars are spent every year so that you forget why you got there. You know what I mean? Like the other day I needed to check the weather and somehow I ended up in Instagram. The weather is not Instagram, friends, if you haven't used it. it. Like I set my phone down and walked off. I was like, what was I looking for again? Oh, the weather. Like it is built to turn you into a product. It just is. It's not neutral. 
and it gets in the way of our formation if we don't use it right. And it really hijacks our brains. So I want you to just, as we're talking about disciplines and as I'm wrapping up, I want you to know that we're not confusing results with means. If you think being more disciplined will make you more presentable before God, that's not right. Discipline is not something that helps our future selves be more loved by God. Rather, it's something that helps our future selves be more surrendered to God. The point is that if we want progress in the Christian life as God defines it, if we want to grow in wisdom and become truly human, we have to become aware of the fact that becoming our future selves is a work of patient perseverance. Like you and I will do crazy things to be with the people we love. And people will do crazy things to buy things they want, right? You get fixated on a new gadget and all of a sudden it's like, how do I get that? I could sell this, I could do this, okay. Like, I got, it on, yeah, I got such a deal on it. We get so proud of that. Why don't you take that ambition and ingenuity and put it towards becoming more like Jesus? The repetitive and continuous completion of actions and habits builds character, good or bad. I want you to think about your life and what you're doing on a repetitive nature and what it's sowing towards. So at this point, you probably think, okay, King's going to give us a checklist of disciplines. Like, read your Bible, pray, Tell people about Jesus, practice generosity. Yes to all those things. You should be doing all those things. Those things form in you a certain way of being. My encouragement to you is the way those things practice and the things you do will change over seasons of life. They are not static. They are dynamic because you are in relationship with a person. You are not performing to get acceptance. And so don't base your status with God on the habits you do, but know the habits are making you more aware and attuned to the presence of God in daily life. So get wisdom, see rightly, keep watch. Uh, we've moved way too much, like homes. Uh, we've moved, I think, seven times in 12 years of marriage. And uh, I promise it's not all me. So... But in thinking through it, this last move, it was like, okay, this is the next season. This is where we want to be. So we move into this house. And the best thing about this house is that there's these windows in the living room that look out into our neighbor's backyard. <laughs> I live in the suburbs, guys. So I just, here's reality. Now we have some space. We're not looking in their windows, but we're like, it's their backyard. In their backyard, they have this beautiful, I mean, beautiful oak tree. And I love that tree. I've spent the last two years, every morning, sitting in the living room before my kids are up, which is early, y'all, and the sun's not up, and I'm looking at this tree. As I'm drinking my coffee, trying to come awake, I see this tree, and I've just been studying it. And I want my life, at the end of it, to look like that tree. Like you and I are in an ongoing process of change until the day that we die. And the call for our lives is to become something to become who God made us to be. And that takes decades. We're looking for life change in like months. We expect change in, in weeks. And if it doesn't happen, we get discouraged. But God's plan is years and decades of formation. So I'm looking at that tree going, I want to look like that. You know, I'm, I'm in midlife. And it's like, what are the next four or five decades going to look like? How do I set up my life so that I am strong and mighty like that oak, and I provide shade for others. If you had to draw right now, if you have a piece of paper or if you, 
really had some kind of like creativity wound in your childhood and you don't draw anymore, think about, it's a joke, uh, think about your life right now as a tree. What would it look like? Is it thriving? Is it planted by streams of flowing water? Or its roots deep? Is it bearing shade? Like how, how is your life right now? Now, if you do me a favor, I, I want you to think about however many decades you've got left. However many you think you have left. Who do you want to become? You're becoming somebody right now. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to offer to Jesus at the end of your life? What does that tree look like? Can you picture it in your head right now? Is it tall and strong? How deep are its roots? What color are its leaves? You and I are pulled forward by what we love. We're pulled forward by hope. And so in the aspect of how wisdom shapes our formation as a Christian, you need to have a picture of the end of your life. Too often we're just thinking a couple weeks ahead or right in our own experience. But I encourage you to think about your life and who God wants you to become. So I've got some questions for you. Maybe this is something that you could do. Um, you guys go to brunch. That's a thing, right? So maybe when you're having lunch, you could have this conversation with friends or family. What do you want the tree of your life to look like in the end? Okay, yeah, questions. Here we go. What does life look like now? And what do you hope for in years to come? What does it look like now? And what do you hope for in years to come? Next question is, where do you struggle with the idea of effort in relationship with God? Like, where does it just rub you the wrong way? And how do you reconcile that? And the last one, what would it take in daily life for you to get wisdom, see rightly, and keep watch? What would it take? Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. The invitation is into life and joy. And so, friends, if we get wisdom, see rightly, and keep watch, we will be drawn by grace, kept by love, to pursue a faithful life. And that's our gift. That's our joy in Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are not playing a cosmic game of hide-and-seek. You have shown yourself to us. You have told us what you want of us. You have made it clear, and you've provided for us in Jesus. And so would you please help us to know where we are not seeing you rightly. And because we don't see you rightly, we don't know ourselves rightly. And we need you. So I pray for brothers and sisters in this room that are trapped by shame, condemnation, accusation. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would help them to see that they are loved and kept, cared for. That you are not just good 
to us, but you are good for us and you are kind. Would you help us, Lord? I pray in Christ's name, amen.